0: All right, so Psalm thirty-two. I've entitled this message "Instructions." I'm going to begin with reminding us of what we already knew that that men traditionally are not great about reading instructions. Uh, so it's the the Christmas Eve night, opening up the bicycle to put together uh, for the child for Christmas Day, and. It's well into the night and let's go take some things apart and go back to the instructions now. Uh, it's, it's kind of a thing that we do as men. We don't wanna stop and ask for directions or don't wanna to listen to what Google Maps would have to say for us. It's that, that rebelliousness, but I don't think it's only limited to men. I think both men and women have a tendency to ignore instructions from time to time. And I believe this goes back to our first parents back in the Garden of Eden as they disobeyed the instructions of the Lord. And so we've inherited that sin nature that came about as they fell. And so we're naturally rebellious. We naturally don't want to listen. If it's not our idea so often, we just don't want to partake in it. And so what we have here is a reminder in Psalm 32 to to just listen to instruction that the Lord wants to give us in instructions. His instructions are always good. His instructions are always righteous. His instructions are always what we need. But what has to happen on our part is we must train ourselves to be teachable. We must train ourselves to receive instruction because it's not our natural tendency. From the time we were very little, we said things like, I can do it myself. I can do it my way. And so it's important for us not to be like Frank Sinatra and do it our way but instead for us to be like David who learned to do it the Lord's way. So let's look at, here it is, Psalm 32. Begin with the title, it's a Psalm of David, a contemplation. Now, when you and I think of contemplation, right? It may think about sitting and thinking about something, and that's an aspect to it. But it seems that that word contemplation may be better translated instruction, an instruction, something to consider, something to change your life by listening to what it has to say, and something to ponder, think through. So what David wants us to do with this psalm, as he's inspired by the Holy Spirit to write, to, to write it, is to sit in this psalm, to think about it, to pause, and to take these instructions. And so Psalm 32 was written to be pondered and then applied to one's life. And so let me read through it, and then we'll work our way through verse by verse. I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin, Salah. For this cause, everyone who is godly shall pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters, they shall not come near him. You are my hiding place. You shall preserve me from trouble. You shall surround me with songs of deliverance, Salah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye. Do not be like the horse or like the mule, which have no understanding, which must be harnessed with bit and bridle, else they will not come near you. Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, mercy shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart." Now, as we get into this, I want to remind ourselves of something kind of the Lord showed me this week as I was kind of thinking through David, is that David was a sinner. David was a mess. And we talked about this a little bit last week about how even David in his iniquity, he called out to the Lord that we're not to stay in our sin, where we're to call out to the Lord in the midst of that. And we'll get to that today. But, but sometimes we can think ourselves or others disqualified because we look at the, ourselves and we say, well, I'm too much of a sinner. How can God use me? Or we look at other people, they're too much of a sinner. How can God use them? But if a person has received the grace of God, though they may be a sinner, there's that continual forgiveness. There's that ultimate forgiveness at the cross. But there's also this. Think about all the sins David committed. Now we go to the the Bathsheba one, and we'll talk about that in here. But really, David was a bad father. David was a bad husband. David had a lot of things he did wrong, but through all of those messes, all of those things, David still had a heart after God. David was a man who was seeking after God's heart. And so he was a mess. And then think for just a moment, how many hundreds of millions, perhaps billions of people in human history have been blessed through the ministry of David in spite of his faults and failures. And so I want to encourage you to realize that though your faults, your sins may be over your head, as you bring those to the Lord, the Lord will forgive them. And then also to realize that the Lord will still use you. If the Lord can use someone like David, then surely the Lord can use people like you and I. Now, getting into verse one, notice, blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Now, that word "blessed" here, it means, oh, how happy. Oh, how happy. Now, there's, you probably heard it in Christian circles. We kind of always make this distinction between happiness and joy, and happiness is built on circumstances, and joy is kind of deeper in it. And then the more that I've actually studied the word of God, I don't know that I buy that anymore. Because actually this word here in the Hebrew, and then we'll talk about in just a minute what Jesus says in the, in the gospel of Matthew, blessed really means happy. Okay, this, this happiness that wells up, that for us as believers, there's an opportunity to be happy, to, to be excited about life, to, in, as, as Paul said, to be sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. So this, how, oh, how happy, as we think about what it means to be blessed here, and we're going to talk about it in relation to forgiveness of sins, I want to go ahead and take you to Matthew chapter five for just a moment. Would you go to Matthew chapter five? As you're turning there, I kind of want to give you a little reason of why I'm doing what I'm doing. It's, it's been made clear to me uh, this past week and just some different circumstances that have gone on is that many Christians have a low degree of Bible literacy. What I mean by that is many Christians don't really kind of know the scriptures, they kind of have an idea, but they really can't put those pieces together. And so part of what I'm seeking to do as I teach on Sunday after Sunday is help increase our Bible literacy, help us remind ourselves of these different things. So turning you to Matthew chapter five, looking at verses one through 12, these are the Beatitudes. This is one of those sections of scripture that we're going to remind ourselves often. And so Jesus here in Matthew five through seven is giving the famous sermon on the Mount. And here he's telling us how we can live a blessed life. Please understand that every time you sit down and watch a TV show and there's a commercial, that commercial is seeking to tell you how you can live a blessed life. If you have a car that's just like this, blessed life. If you have this medicine to cure your disease, you're gonna have a blessed life. If you eat this food, go to this restaurant, go to this place, you're gonna have a blessed life. So that's what the world is selling us. And then we tell ourselves stories. We say, if only this were this way, then I could have a blessed life or if only this thing happened and I can have a blessed life. But we need to get rid of all of that and just come to, well, the savior, Jesus Christ, the one who made me, how does he tell me I can have a blessed life? Because I'm seeking that. Every man is seeking that which they view as good. Jesus is telling us, here's the good. So starting in verse one, it says, And seeing the multitudes, he went up on the mountain. And when he was seated, his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed or exceedingly happy are the poor in spirit. What? (laughs) Let me just stop you right there, Jesus. So you're telling me that the happy life, the joyful life is being poor in spirit. That's recognizing our spiritual poverty. That's recognizing our spiritual lack, the fact that we don't have it together, that we don't have what it takes because what happens when we recognize that, notice, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You're no longer looking for a kingdom in yourself. You're no longer looking to be a king of your own little empire. Instead, you're saying, I'm gonna seek the kingdom of heaven. When you realize your poverty, you come begging to the king of all the universe and say, can I be a part of your kingdom because my kingdom's no good. My kingdom's not worth it. Then he says, blessed, oh, exceedingly happy are those who mourn. What? Well, I, I think the primary example is mourning over their sin, mourning over their fallenness, mourning over how they fall short, because what? They're gonna be spiritually comforted. They're gonna be comforted by the Lord. But it goes beyond that to mourning over the loss of things in this life, the loss of loved ones and hardships. Then what happens? God comes in and he comforts those who are in need of comfort. He uses fellow believers to comfort them and builds relationship through that. Blessed, exceedingly happy are the meek. What does it mean to be meek? It means to not be self-assertive. It means to not be rude and have to have your own way. And it's always my way. Meekness is really about power under control. It's the idea of a war horse that has all this power, but is under control. Blessed is a person who's meek. Jesus Christ had all the power he could want and yet in meekness submitted himself to the death of the cross. So for you and I, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The, you know, sometimes we kind of fight and think about, oh, I just, just if only I had a little bit bigger house. I've only had a little bit more land. Or just wait. <laughs> the day's coming. The day is coming where the Lord is going to give to you. You're gonna inherit the earth. Blessed, exceedingly happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness who realize that, uh, man, I'm, I'm thirsty for the Lord. I'm hungry for the Lord. I want to be right. I want to have what he has. Notice what it says. He says, they shall be filled, not with their own righteousness, but with his righteousness, with who he is, what he offers, what he gives. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. This ties into what Jesus says a little bit later about the measurement you use will be measured back to you as you're merciful to forgive those who have sinned against you, as you're you're merciful to those who misrepresent you or all those things, then what's happened is God is going to show that mercy to you. Blessed, exceedingly happy are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now, that's that's a tough one. How do do I be pure in heart? What's going on here? How can I see this? Because I want to see God. Well, God can give you that purity of heart. Right, God can cleanse that heart as you give it over to him, as you offer yourself up to him, as it talks about in Romans chapter 12. Right, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, offering yourself up as this living sacrifice, all of that. But also we can, we can play a part in this and say, I want my desires, I want my focus to be on the Lord. I want to seek after him. And then what happens, God begins to refine away those other things. And then we are going to see God. Nine, blessed, seemingly happy are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. Instead of being those who sow discord among the brethren, instead of being those who just starting a fight, I just wanna, hey, remind you of this thing, get this thing done. What happens is we say, you know, I, I wanna make peace in situations and we call sons of God. Now, please understand, as we look at this, blessed are the peacemakers, it doesn't mean I'm just gonna not call sin, sin anymore. I'm just gonna to tolerate whatever. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about whenever you can be at peace with someone, be at peace. Paul says, as, as much as depends on you, If it's possible, be at peace with all men. And so peacemakers are called the sons of God. How so? Well, think about the ultimate son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ came to make peace between God and a fallen creation. God the Father wanted that peace made, but man's sin stood in the way. And so Jesus Christ came to make that peace. Verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So 10 through 12 go together and it's basically blessed are you when you are mistreated for righteousness sake. Blessed are you when people talk bad about you because you serve the Lord. Blessed are you when you lose because you're seeking after God. Now, for my money, those are the hardest ones to to obey. Those are the hardest ones to believe. But we see this throughout the scriptures, men and women who served God faithfully through the scriptures and Christian history, they're often mistreated. But then we look at them and we say, how awesome. How great are they? How wonderful to give us that example. So when you and I find ourselves going to the broken cisterns of this world that hold no water, and seeking to find fulfillment in them, let's come back to Matthew chapter five. Let's remind ourselves that this is the key to a happy life, seeking after things the way that the Lord Jesus sought after things. All right, so with this in mind, kind of thinking about this blessed, let's turn back to Psalm 32 now. And so we see, Specifically, what is this blessedness that David is talking about? He's talking about the forgiveness of sins. Notice, blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. I want to break down these words for just a minute. That word transgression, it means to step over a line. It's rebellion. It's, you, you've all felt it. You've all felt it when it says, wet paint, don't touch. I've got to do it. You know, you, you felt that where it said, don't do something. And you said, you know, what? I think I will do it. And some of it, our rebellion is just in there. It's just, it's little bitty, but it's there. It's speed limit 80, speed limit 80. That's fast. And we're like, it's not fast enough. I must, you know what that is? It's not about going 80. It's about being rebellious. It's about being a transgressor. It's about, I'm, I, you know what? People can't tell me what to do. I'm gonna go ahead and do a little bit more. That's what it is. That's the heart behind it. And that's a heart in all of us. It's this rebellion. But it's interesting, a long time ago, I heard R.C. Sproul put it this way. He says, sin is cosmic rebellion. Sin is cosmic rebellion. The cosmos is overseen by this infinite God. And whenever we we sin, we're basically saying, you're not the boss of me. I'm gonna do it my way. And, and the, but, but the good news is this king of all the universe, instead of squashing us like a bug, he chooses to forgive us. Notice, blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. Now that word forgiven, we use that word forgiven all the time and we kind of don't really think about it. The Hebrew word for forgiven, it means to lift up and carry away. Just think about that imagery for just a minute. That your sin being lifted up and carried away from you taken away as far as the east is from the west it's been said kind of it's like a, a little silly saying but i like it that god has taken your sin thrown it in the sea of forgetfulness and has posted a sign no fishing don't get bring it back up that's what god does with our sins now notice So he does with our rebellions. And then he says, whose sin is covered. That word sin, it speaks of specific wrong actions. So just think about any specific wrong action that you and I do in word, in deed, sins of commission, sins of omission, what happens, God forgives those. And it says he covers them. That word covered there, it means to conceal or to hide. It talks about in the scriptures, it's it's to a man's glory to overlook a trespass. And so, so we look at this, and you think about it, I don't have time this morning to get there, but I, I want to uh, give you a chapter of scripture. You can read it on your own. It's Leviticus 16. Now you're like, Steve doesn't like us giving us Leviticus homework. Uh, Leviticus 16 is the day of atonement. And it's so incredibly instructive and revelatory of what David is talking about here. You see, because on the day of atonement, it was a one day of the year that the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies. And on that day, it was interesting. There were two goats. And there are these two goats, and what happened is one goat was offered, was killed as a sin offering, and what happened is the high priest would take some of the blood of that goat, go into the Holy of Holies, and put blood on the mercy seat. And why he would do that is because there in the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seats the lid in the Ark of the Covenant are the Ten Commandments given to Moses. And so God, in His glory would manifest himself above the Ark of the Covenant. And so as God looks down at the law, he sees that those law is broken, but that blood would cover that broken law. That's what's the imagery on the Day of Atonement. So the blood covering, <clears throat> but then there was another goat and you've heard the word of it before. It's called the scapegoat. Scapegoat is short for escape goat. The scapegoat was a second goat where the high priest would lay his hand on the goat, confess the sins to the people, and then they would send the goat out of the camp. And they would make the camp go away, uh, the goat go away. Why? It was symbolic of not only was God covering sin, but God was taking away sin. God was taking the sin out of the camp. And imagine what that would have been like on that day. You're an Israelite. You know, you've sinned all year and you've done the offerings, but, but there's that sense of guilt. And you see the high priest praying over that scapegoat. And then you see that goat go away and know what God's done is God's taking your sins out of the camp with that goat. And then, but it gets better in the New Testament, but wait, there's more. In the New Testament, Jesus Christ, as he dies on the cross, he takes our sins away just as that scapegoat did, but he doesn't cover our sins. He erases our sins. He cleanses our sins. You see the day of atonement, they had to do it year after year after year, because the author of Hebrews tells us that it's not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. But Jesus Christ, by one offering, has taken away our sins forever. He's fully justified those who are being sanctified. He has by one sacrifice taken our sins away forever. And so I think for you and I, it's important to really sit in this imagery, to take it to heart, to realize this is the truth, that God is giving us these pictures so we can understand what he's done that he hasn't only covered and taken away, but he's cleansed and taken away, that it's gone forever through his finished work. Let's continue on now to verse two. Blessed is a man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Now that word man there, it just is the Hebrew word for person. It's a human being, anybody, any man, any woman. And it says this word impute here, it means to charge his account with. Now, if you and I, from time to time, things weird will happen. Maybe somebody's got a hold of our credit card number or something, and we find this charge, right? That we didn't, you know, that that we didn't authorize. There's a charge there, and we need to get taken care of. And, And so, but imagine if you and I got a daily statement of our sins, a daily statement of all the things that we had been charged with, and so, what David is saying here is blessed is a man who God doesn't put those charges on your account. Blessed is a man who doesn't receive those charges. If you and I think that we don't sin daily, then we've got another problem. It says that we say we don't sin, we're liars. The fact of the matter is though there's this blessing as we ask God, Lord, please don't impute that to my account. Please don't charge that to my account. And there's a blessing there, how happy is that person? Now, notice what is it being charged with? Iniquity, that word iniquity means perversity, depravity. We all have it in us, it speaks of a crookedness that we want to do something other than the right thing. And then continuing on, it says, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. What is David doing here? He's exhorting us to honesty. He's exhorting us to truthfulness. You know, it, I, I heard it ever since I was little. Honesty is the best policy. And I did not live by that. When I was growing up, I was one of the, I was probably the second worst liar I knew because there was a guy at school that was way worse than I was. Uh, he, he could never tell the truth, it seemed. Uh, but, but I lied all the time. But what is the Lord doing? Why does the Lord want honesty? Why, why does he want us to be people in whose spirit is there is no deceit? Because true relationship with the Lord happens when we're honest with him and with ourselves. That's why. The, the Lord doesn't want us to be honest because he needs to know what's going on. See, that's you and I, right? Oftentimes we need a person to be honest with us because we don't really know what's going on. And if they're not honest with us, we can't know that. God doesn't have that problem. God is omniscient. That means he knows all things. There has never been a moment in human history where God hasn't had all the information. There's never been a moment in all of time or or however you want to, eternity past, he's known it all. So why does God want us to be honest? Because if we're not honest with ourselves about the reality of things, and if we're not honest with him, we can't have real relationship with him. So God wants us to have an ever-increasing relationship with him. And so it's important that we rid ourselves of self-deception. And that's where coming to the word often, uh, you know, that's what helps us. As we come to the word of God, the word of God is a mirror that shows us truth. It shows us where we are. It shows us who we are. And so what happens as we, if we're honest, okay, that's me, all right, then God can do something with that. And so it's important for us to, to seek that truthfulness and honesty. Now, as we move into verse three, most commentators think that this is a reference to the sin with Bathsheba. Most commentators think that this is a reference to that, that time period where David didn't confess his sin, where David just held on to it. Now, if you kind of put the scriptures together, you realize quite a while passed before David confessed his sin. Because there was a baby born, so it's at least, you know, nine plus months of David not confessing this sin. Now, let's go to verse three. It says, when I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. So David's unrepentant sin, it affected him physically, It affected him in his life. So what happened as he kept silent, what he means by that, as he refused to repent of his sin, as he refused to fess up, then just inwardly he began to grow old. It affected him physically. And so we have to remind ourselves that our soul and our body are interrelated. That what happens in our soul affects our body. What happens in our body affects our soul. That's how God made us. And he didn't make us for this temporary. You see, there's this Greek thinking in the past that the, the, whatever's material is no good, the spiritual is only the good part. So it's, it's really important to, to kind of be released from our, our bodies and to just become spirit. But you know what, what Paul said is, Paul said, man, I can't wait for that resurrected body because God made us both body and soul. And so it's important for us to realize that because, you know, if you if you read 1 Corinthians, you know, the Corinthians thought that they could just sin with their bodies and their souls would be unaffected. That, it, it, that one didn't affect the other. And so I want to have you turn there for just a moment. So would you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter six? I want to look at this because this is kind of a common thing that's, that's been around, you know, in any, many, 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 many Christians. They say, well, I'm a believer. It doesn't really matter kind of what I do with my body. Uh, because, you know, I'm on my way to heaven. God's forgiven me. It's not going to affect me. It's going to be fine. But this is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6. Let's pick up in verse 12. He says, all things are lawful for me, but but all things are not helpful. Now, I don't believe that Paul is actually saying all things are lawful. Because if you've ever read all of Paul's epistles, Paul says lots of things aren't lawful. <laughs> so I think what he's doing is, I think he's he's saying this is what they're saying. You guys are saying all things are lawful, and he's saying to him, but not all things are helpful. You guys are saying all things are lawful for me, but I'll be not under the, but the reality is I will not be brought into the power of any of them. Foods for the stomach and stomach for foods, but God will destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Okay. So the Corinthians, again, we're thinking this Greek thinking, material is bad, immaterial is good. So we can do whatever we want. They had gotten to the point where they were thinking it was okay as a Christian to sleep a prostitutes it's fine because it's just my body it doesn't affect my soul and that's not true that whatever we do in the body affects our soul and vice versa and so he says and the and both god both raised up the lord and will also raise us up by his power do you not know that your bodies are members of christ shall i then take the members of christ and make them members of a harlot certainly not Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside his body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and who you are not your own? for you were bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So let's take this to heart, that whatever we do with our body affects our soul, whatever we do with our soul affects our body. And you've all seen this. Maybe you're like me, a naturally pessimistic, cynical person, and someone tells you, hey, why don't you practice smiling? oh, okay. (laughs) And you practice smiling. You know what happens as you practice smiling enough, you start actually having a better attitude. It affects your soul. And so this is important for us to understand because we live in this weird dichotomy, especially as Christians under the quote unquote liberty. I'll do whatever I want with my body or kind of be loose with my body in just all different ways. And it'll be fine. And then we wonder why our soul is the way that it is. And so we need to take care of both the soul and the body. All right, let's turn back now. Psalm 32, verse four says, for day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. And so here we talk about the chastening of the Lord, the conviction of the sin. So so you and I most likely know what it was like to be a, a small child and be doing something wrong, thinking no adult was around, And a parent or a teacher comes and puts the hand on the shoulder. (laughs) I know what that's like to be criticizing, cutting somebody down at school. And there's the teacher's hand on my shoulder. That's how David was. That's what the Lord was doing. Now, think about this. If the Lord had just wanted to crush David, no big deal. God could do that wouldn't take any effort on his part. So why was God's hand heavy upon him? Well, to answer that question, let's turn to Hebrews chapter 12. Lots of good places to turn to this morning. Hebrews chapter 12, we want to look at the chastening of the Lord. Hebrews 12, let's look at verses five through 11. Okay, like I've said before, you know, as, as Christians, as children of God, we never outgrow the need for spankings. We never outgrow the need for chastening. And so this is what we see here. Let's pick up in verse five, Hebrews 12, verse five. He says, and you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. So the author to the Hebrews is writing to a group of people and they're they're undergoing God's chastening and they're kind of wondering what's going on. He says, my son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you're rebuked by him. For he whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. Now, if you're anything like me, then whenever you're chastened by the Lord, you're discouraged. Okay, God doesn't love me, and he's done with me, and it's over now. And, it's, and that's, the scripture says, no, no, let me stop you right there. No. A, a parent who loves a child, a father who loves a child, chastens that child chastens that child to correct them. Notice, if you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. So that's the scary part. If you are just kind of going through life and God's never chastening you, it's a problem. Either you're illegitimate son or you've closed your ears to God so much so that you can't can't hear his chastening. Because God wants to chasten us to bring us, uh, grow us up in him. He says, Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them. But he for our prophet, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present. Amen right? None of us, if you're like me, you had to get lots of spankings. You weren't like, man, this is going to be good for me. Let's love this. This is a great moment. It's just really fortifying my character. No, it's never joyful for the present, but here it is. It's painful. Nevertheless, afterwards, what does it do? It yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. That's what God's going for. God wants to, to, to bear fruit through us, that peaceable fruit of righteousness. You can read more about that. I think it's John 15, right? That God wants us to bear fruit and more fruit and much fruit. Now, let's go ahead and be, go back to Psalm 32, pick up in verse five now, okay? He says, or actually the second part of verse four, he says, my vitality was turned into the drought of summer, Salah. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. In other words, he just where he had felt like energetic inside and vibrant, then what happens, he just feels all dried up, all withered up inside. Now, David doesn't hit on it here, but if you know the story, David didn't come to this asking for forgiveness on his own. David, David was just kind of doing life and he was kind of going about it and he was continually withered up. So at one point, God sent the prophet Nathan. Nathan told him a story, you're familiar with it. He said to David, hey, there's here, this deal. There's this guy. And he had this one little sheep. He Just loved it. And he cared for it. It was like a child to him. Neighbor had a bunch of sheep. Neighbor came over, killed that sheep, served it up to a guest he had come into town. David was outraged. David says, let's kill that guy. Death penalty. Now that wasn't in the law. You couldn't, you couldn't kill somebody for, for stealing a sheep. But David was so enraged. And then Nathan just looked at him and said, you're the man. You're the one who did that thing. And David, to his credit, was broken. David said, you're right. Confessed his sin. And the the baby that they had with Bathsheba ended up dying. And and so we have all of that going on. David could have killed Nathan. David could have said, you know what? Forget you. i got to cover this up. But in that moment, David was willing to repent and be restored. And so it's important for us that maybe we've gone far. Maybe it's gonna take somebody to really smack us upside the head to get us to repent. Don't keep doubling down. Ask for forgiveness, ask for restoration. All right, verse five says, I acknowledge my sin to you and, and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Salam. So when it finally came to it, David was willing to acknowledge his sin. And so this is what, the, the big picture of verse five, please understand this, confession brings forgiveness. Confession brings forgiveness. As a believer, as you confess to the Lord, God's gonna forgive you. Hey, it's not going to be like, well, you know what? He was close, but, but I really didn't like the preposition he used. And so, no, it's not going to be like that. The fact of the matter is when you confess to the Lord, the Lord will forgive. Now, I love this word acknowledged here. That word acknowledged means I, I caused you to know. Now, it's an interesting idea because God already knew, right? God already knew that, but something happens when we confess it. You've experienced this as a parent. You know your child has done something wrong, but it's when that child finally confesses it, there's a restoration of relationship. We can move on from there. So it's not merely about it the, the parent knowing it. It's about the child confessing it. Same thing with us and God. God knows it. But there's something, there's a block, there's, there's a, a boundary in relationship when we don't confess it. So when we say, I cause you to know God what I've done, then what happens is a restoration of fellowship takes place. And so this is a reminder again, God forgives sin. God forgives sin. That's what he does. That's what he's in the business of doing. And so um, I, I don't really have time to get there right now, but I wanna give you some, some verses to look at a little bit later. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses nine through 11. And what we have is this, this picture where Paul says, hey, all, he gives a, a whole list of, of people involved in different sin. And he says, these type, sort of people will not inherit the kingdom of God. But then he says in verse 11, but such were some of you. you were justified, you were sanctified by the Lord Jesus Christ. You were cleansed of your sin. So what I want you to do with that list and kind of remind yourself, you know, whether if you fall into sin or other people fall into sin, that that God can forgive any sin except the refusal to come to him. God can forgive any sin except the refusal to recognize the, you know, the the Holy Spirit, receive the Holy Spirit's witness of him. That's the unforgivable sin. And, And so... That's important for us, because as believers, we may think, well, it's too far this time, too far gone. No, 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 no. God is willing to forgive that. Or we might think about some unbeliever and say, well, just there's no way they can ever come. They're just too far gone. No, let's keep praying for them. Let's keep reaching out to them. And let's take 1 John 1, 9 to heart, where John tells us as believers, if we confess our sins, he is faithful. You see, not not that we're faithful, not that we've got it going on, not that we just prayed just right, but that he's faithful. He's the faithful one in the relationship. That he is faithful and just. Just to who? Just to his character. Just to his perfection. Just to the fact that he's a forgiving God. He's just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from not part, not a little bit, but all unrighteousness. That's what it says. That's what scripture says. So for you and I, It is really, really challenging when God begins to reveal more of our sin to us. It's hard. And if you're not in that place today, it's coming. (laughs) God will reveal more and more of your sin to you. And then what's gonna happen is it's gonna be, there's gonna be a tendency to despair. There's gonna be a tendency to say, I just, I I wish I'd never seen this. I wish I was just kind of happy and thinking I was so awesome. But then what's gonna, it'll, it'll turn your view away from yourself to God. And you realize it's his goodness, it's his righteousness, it's his faithfulness, it's his justice. And then that's the only place where blessing is found. Blessing is found only, this blessedness, this happiness is only found as where God directed. It's the only place because every person, thing, whether yourself or another are ultimately unfulfilling because we're not built for that. We're only built to be fulfilled in God. No one else can fulfill us. Verse six. For this cause, everyone who is godly shall pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely a flood of great waters, they shall not come near him. And so I love this first line here, for this cause, everyone who is godly shall pray to you. For what cause? Well, what just came before? The cause that God's a forgiving God. Knowing that God is willing to forgive should cause us to pray to him. Knowing that God is willing over and over and over to forgive us should cause us to go to him. For you and I, right? Oftentimes we're just like, I've had enough. I don't wanna hear from this person anymore. It's over, I'm breaking relationship. It's, It's done. God's never like that. God God, just, hey, come on back. And so that, the knowing that God's forgiving should cause us to pray to him. And then it's very interesting in verse six, it says, in a time when you may be found. Huh, what does that mean? Time when you may be found, because God is omnipresent. So how does this work? Here's my own take on it. You guys can disagree, but I think what it's saying is, if we were to continue an unrepentant sin, it causes a person to lose sight of God. The person who continues in unrepentant sin begins to lose sight of God. And then really kind of like, well, how do I find God anymore? And I can't see him because of all my sin. So I think the idea here is to be quick repenters, to be people who don't continue so long in whatever it is, you know, in unthankfulness or in bitterness or whatever, that you're like, I just can't find God anywhere. And so I so I love this picture that, hey, let's go ahead and, and pray to him when he may be found. Let's pray to him before we're so far gone that we just say, you know what? I'm just going to have kind of happy living in the dump. I'm happy swimming around in the sewer instead of seeking after the Lord and it says, surely in a flood of great waters, they shall not come near him. And so this, uh, you know, maybe the floodwaters speak of the flood waters of misery and sin. That all of that is avoidable if we would go to the Lord. Perhaps that's what David is talking about, that we can avoid that misery of, of, of sin as we seek him for forgiveness. Verse seven says, you are my hiding place. You shall preserve me from trouble. You shall surround me with songs of deliverance. Selah. And so God is to be our hiding place. And it's, it's interesting. One of the books I haven't read in a long time and I wanna to listen to it again is, is called The Hiding Place by Corrie ten Boom. You know, it speaks about how she and her family hid Jews during World War II and eventually her father and she and her sister were arrested and put in a prison camp and her father dies and her sister dies and all the struggles that she had to go through. But, but she sought God as her hiding place as well. And so it's interesting, they had a hiding place for the Jews, but then God was their ultimate hiding place. And so that's for us, for you and I, to seek God as our hiding place, to seek preservation from trouble in him, to realize that God surrounds us with songs of deliverance. What does that mean, songs of deliverance? Read the scriptures and read over and over again how God says he's gonna deliver you. Read over and over again how God says, the day is coming, Christian, when I'm gonna take you home with me. Read about that. So the scripture is filled with songs of deliverance. The scripture is filled with these songs of God saying, You're coming home with me. I know it's hard. I know it's long, but the day is coming. I will deliver you. Now, verse 8 and 9 are very interesting here because now it shifts from David to the Lord. The Lord is speaking in verses 8 and 9. And at verse 8. This is the Lord speaking. He says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye. Now, I love this. What is it? The Lord is willing to instruct, to teach, and to guide. And then you feel the scriptures are filled with this. The instruction, teaching, and guiding of the Lord. Read the book of Proverbs. It says, hey, seek knowledge and wisdom and understanding. So cover to cover, it's instruction, teaching, and guiding. So, so the main takeaway I wanted to give from this first part of verse eight is simply this. We must be teachable, okay? You know, I, 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 I've been a student, I've been a teacher, and I can tell when a student comes into a classroom if they're ready to learn or not ready to learn. And so same thing for you and I, right? But the, the challenging thing for you and I is all of life is God's classroom. Every day is a school day for the Lord. God is always teaching. And so the, the, really what's, what's on our part is so God's always teaching for you and I is are we always teachable? That's the key. Am I always willing to be taught? am I tr- and, and so it's a practice we have to practice being teachable we have to practice listening we have to practice saying i'm going to do this now the the way that we learn things is by actually being willing to work it out it was funny a, a couple weeks ago i needed to cover a class for brandy cuz she was going to be out of town and 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 brandy's she's wonderful at math and I am less wonderful. Um, and so she was instructing me. She came into my office and she was working through the problems with, her, with me and I was transported back to being you know, a high school student and I, was, and I was like basically copying her work, not understanding. <laughs> and so I felt pretty good in the moment because I was like, oh yeah, look at me, write numbers. And then I got into the classroom to cover it for her and then I realized I don't really know what I'm doing. <laughs> I don't know what I'm talking about. And so so I thought I was being teachable, but I wasn't really, why? Because I wasn't really learning how to apply it. I wasn't really taking it to heart to say, hmm, this is actually how it's done. So for you and I, if we come to the scriptures and we say, oh, there's some more Bible knowledge. I have no intention of doing that. We're not being teachable. We're only being teachable if we come to the word of God and say, ah, this really hit me right in the gut. I'm gonna go ahead and do it anyway in the power of the spirit. I'm gonna go ahead and obey that thing. Now. Some of your translations may say uh, my eye will be upon you or something like that for the end of verse eight. And so if, if that's the right translation, it means that God's kind of watching over as he's guiding, teaching, instructing, a good teacher who keeps an eye on his students. I, I love the New King James translation. I believe that this is the proper translation. He says, I will guide you with my eye. I love this because when a, when a, a, a child is in tune with his parent, the parent can just look and the child knows what the, the parent wants. Uh, uh, you know, as I like, Brandon, and I like to watch a lot of baseball and college baseball. And you can know that the coaches can give looks to their players and the player knows what, what, what to do. The player knows. And so I believe that's a relationship the Lord wants to have with you and I, that we see in a sense, the Lord looking at a situation and we're like, okay, I know what the Lord wants me to do. I, the, the Lord kind of shows us with his eyes a person and we're like, I know that that person needs comfort. or I need to know that person needs exhortation. That's what the Lord wants to do. He wants to guide us with his eye. What a beautiful relationship the Lord wants to have. He wants to have an intimate relationship with us, not a business relationship. Not a just kind of like, I'll meet you on Sunday or any of those things. The Lord once says, "I, I want you to be so in tune with me that I can guide you with my eye. And then he gives an instruction of what he doesn't want in verse nine. He says, do not be like the horse or the mule who have no understanding, which must be harnessed with bit and bridle, else they will not come near you. The Lord says, I don't want to have to physically manipulate you into obeying. I don't want to have to put a bit and bridle over your head and, you know, hurt your neck as I have to move you around. He says, I don't want to be like that. The Lord wants us to be obedient sons and daughters, not disobedient horses and mules. That's what God's called us to. God doesn't need us for what he's doing. God wants us. And so God wants to have relationship with us, so he says, I want you to participate in this. I, I want to be, I want you to want to be led by me. And then you're going to find that you are these sons and daughters of the kingdom. You're going to find your purpose and place in this life. But he says, if you don't, then I have, to, I have to kind of move you around by bit and bridle. And we don't want that. And so it's a much different relationship you can have with a son or daughter than you can have with a horse and mule. It's way different. And so this is, a, this is a wonderful, wonderful picture of how the Lord wants to just have this beautiful, intimate relationship with us. Verse 10, many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, mercy shall surround him. And so it's interesting, this many sorrows shall be to the wicked. Th- we have this tendency, because we have covetous hearts, to look at the wicked and kind of get into the first part of Psalm 73, and they just got it so good and it's so wonderful and it's so happy and they get away with whatever they want. And first of all, not to realize their end, but also to not realize the full picture. Because if you really dig deep into the lives of unbelievers, the lives of the wicked, it's not, it's not a pretty picture. It's filled with sorrows. Proverbs 13, 5, 13 15 tells us, good understanding gains favor, but the way of the unfaithful is hard. The way of the unfaithful is hard. It's a hard life. It's a life of always looking over your back, a life of mistrust, a life of bitterness and anger and fear. It's not a good life. And so, what the Lord is telling us is as we trust in in the Lord, mercy shall surround him. That word surround in the Hebrew, it really speaks about going around and around. You know, kind of the picture I have in my mind is the, the Israelites, you know, how they're walking around Jericho. But, but really, it could be this idea of this mercy is just swirling around us. That wherever we go, there's this mercy surrounding us, doesn't go away, continues on. Verse 11, be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. And so we have three big ideas here. Be glad, rejoice, shout for joy. You can on your own kind of study that a little bit more and think about those different words. But what I really wanna bring out simply is this, these are all choices. Notice David doesn't say, hey, when you feel like it, be glad. When you feel like it, rejoice. When you feel like it, shout for joy. No, 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 He's, he's saying, choose to do this. Choose to be glad. Choose to rejoice choose to shout for joy. Now, as we study the word of God, as we listen to worship music, as we kind of put ourselves in a place to be used by him and serve him, then that's going to be really the natural outflow of our lives, but it's always a choice. It's a choice to be glad, it's a choice to rejoice, it's a choice to shout for joy. And so, as we wrap up and then move into our time of communion, I simply want to leave you with this is are you and I willing to listen to the instructions that the Lord gives in his word? He's instructing moment by moment, day by day, month by month, week by week. The Lord wants to grow us into something. What? He wants to grow us into sons and daughters. He wants to grow us into people who have relationship with him. But you and I, oftentimes, we think something's better. There's something better than obedience. There's, there's something out there that if I just get that thing out there, that's the blessed life. No, the blessed life is turning to the Lord. The blessed life is focusing on Him because only as we turn Godward will we find ourselves in a place that is truly happy.